This morning we're going to look at Hebrews 11, verse 4. If you have your copy of scripture, you'll find it helpful to look there with me, and you'll find that on page 1007 in the church Bible. And before we do, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word together. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom from the scriptures. We ask that you would give us attentiveness as your word is read and preached. We pray, Father, that you would make us to hunger for the scriptures and long to see more fully our Lord Jesus, to love him more dearly, to hold fast to him more tightly and to follow him more fully. We pray, Father, that you would do a marvelous work of grace in our souls this morning and that your word would transform us and change us and that it would have ramifications even into eternity. Father, have mercy on us and help us, Lord Jesus, minister to us this morning, for we pray these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Well, when I was living in Philadelphia with Anna, we would often go to the Philadelphia Art Museum. And as I used that illustration the last time we were together of rushing through an art museum and looking at all the paintings very quickly and not being able to sit and stop and stare, I was reminded of one time in particular when I was in the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art and there was a Renoir exhibit and there was a guide who was taking everyone through and showing them all the details in each of the paintings. And it really was for me an eye opener about how much you miss if you don't have someone guiding you through and looking at details and pointing out historical facts and really seeing the importance of having a guide take you through an art gallery and making you stop and understand each painting. And I'll, I'll never forget one uh, Renoir had painted a, a painting of a man overlooking a, uh, the Seine River and there were two boats and, and the, the majority of the painting was taken up with the water and the boats and the man looking down at the boats but in the background of this painting there was a train and smoke billowing out of the train running along the ridge in the background of the painting and the guide who was taking us through this exhibit said now what you would miss if you if you didn't have someone pointing this out, is the fact that Renoir is really highlighting not the people on the Seine, not the people in the boat, not the man looking on, but the train going by in the back because uh, the Industrial Revolution and the Mechanical Revolution occurring at those times and trains being novelties, being able to take people to new locations and especially being able to take a, a painter or an artist to a scene that he otherwise couldn't have got to easily. And Renoir is actually reflecting on everything that he was painting was made possible because of that train in the background. I think that's helpful when we come to Hebrews 11 because if we just know the stories of the Old Testament, but we don't have an inspired guide taking us down into those stories and saying, here's the really significant thing about this painting. And I think if I asked any of you in this room today... If you knew the story of Cain and Abel, probably everybody in this room, including the children, could get up here and tell a lot of the facts and details about the story of Cain and Abel. And yet I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if we see really in that painting of this first exhibit of faith in the Old Testament, 
just after creation, just after the fall, I wonder if we see everything that the Holy Spirit wants us to see as the writer of Hebrews is pointing it out. And so this morning, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to see Abel's sacrifice of faith. Then we're going to see Abel's righteousness of faith. Thirdly, we're going to see Abel's death of faith. And finally, we're going to see Abel's voice of faith. Well, notice there in verse 4 that the writer now enters in. He's moved from creation. He said, by faith, we believe that the worlds were created by the word of God and that believing in creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, can only be done by faith. And having told us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, now the writer of Hebrews is like a guide in a museum and he's taking us back into the Old Testament and he's saying, come, let me show you what a life of faith looks like. Let me show you in each of these saints revealed in scripture what it means to live and walk by faith. And the first one that he chooses is Abel. Now it's interesting because most commentators, most theologians actually believe, well, most theologians that know the Bible actually believe that Adam and Eve were redeemed. That God actually had Mercy and grace on Adam and Eve, that Adam named his wife Eve living after God said you're going to die because Adam understood the gospel of Genesis 3.15. When God said to Adam and Eve that I'm going to give you a male seed of the woman and he's going to crush the head of the serpent and that that is the gospel that in having his heel bruised at Calvary in his death, Jesus Christ crushed the serpent's head. And that in that first promise of Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve were given the mercy and grace of God and they believed and they trusted. And even Eve, naming her son Cain, I've acquired a man, thinks that he's the redeemer. And so there's all this evidence that Adam and Eve were redeemed and yet the writer of Hebrews skips over them. I think he skips over them because of the greatness of their sin, because of the greatness of their foolishness, because they brought all of the scorn and death and misery into this fallen world, and he moves then to their second son. Now, it's interesting, too, to note that there are many theologians who think that Cain and Abel may have been twins. I never noticed that before. It doesn't say that Cain was years older. It says Cain was born first, and then she gave birth to Abel, And so here we have this example of these, these two brothers, the, the first two sons of the family that messed everything up for everybody. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, in that family, there were two sons, and it really is a tale of two sons, and one of those sons had saving faith. Notice what they say, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now, a whole litany of questions get, gets opened up when we come to this. And we have to ask the question, what was the sacrifice of faith? And I think even before that, we have to say, why were they sacrificing? Where did sacrifice come from? And the answer very clearly has to be from God. It would be a huge mistake for us to think that what Cain and Abel were doing were they were coming and in their own way, they were deciding we're going to give to God what we think we ought to give to God but that God had revealed to Adam and Eve that for the forgiveness of sins, there had to be sacrifice. And probably in clothing them with those animal skins, when Adam and Eve were covered by God, God had probably taken those animals and sacrificed them and taught our first parents what it meant to sacrifice. And it's interesting, isn't it, that this comes in a book that highlights a verse out of Leviticus that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And here, the writer of Hebrews is saying that 
Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And as we go back to Genesis 4 and we look at those facts and those details, we see very, very few things, but really there's a lot of depth there. And what we're told is that Abel was a shepherd and that Cain was a tiller of the ground and that these two brothers in the fullness of time, maybe when they had moved out of their parents' house, they came and they both decided they were going to worship God. They both decided that they were going to worship on their own. They were going to enter into religious service. And what we're told is that, that Cain took of the fruit of the ground and that Abel brought the first of the flock of his sheep. And that's all the writer of Genesis tells us, except that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Now the question is, if you have two brothers who both decide they should be worshiping God, they both come in sacrifice, they both come to uh, give God of all that he had given them, why does God have respect to Abel's sacrifice and not to Cain's? I think the answer is found in the fact that the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abel offered. By faith. Now, we said the last time we were together that faith is always a response to God's word. Faith is not just, I just trust things are going to get better. I want to do this a lot. Faith is always a response to God's word. And if I can say this as humbly as I can, it is an insult to God to try to bring God something he has not commanded. It's dishonoring to God not to do what God has said. God is so precise and so clear in his word that God has said everything that he wants you to know and the response he wants of you is faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And, and what's fascinating is that I believe Abel was looking past that best lamb that he brought to the sacrifice of the Messiah who was promised in Genesis 3.15. Abel was looking for redemption. Abel knew that he was a sinner. Abel knew that God was holy. Abel knew that he needed blood shedding for the forgiveness of sins. Abel didn't trust in the sacrifice he brought. He trusted in the God who would send the Redeemer to be the lamb without blemish and without spot. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable when you look at the parallels between what the scriptures say about Abel's lamb and what the scriptures say about the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. I think that's also interesting in a book where... The Hebrew Christians here in the first century were being tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. They were being tempted to go back to sacrificing bulls and goats and lambs in Judaism and to forsake the sacrifice of Jesus. The entire argument of this book is that the crucifixion of Jesus was the sacrifice of sacrifices, the only sacrifice that can take away sin, the only sacrifice that is pleasing to God, and to reject that is to reject God and not have the remission of sins. And in this book, the writer goes back and he finds, he finds a man who's in a very difficult situation looking in faith beyond the sacrifice that he's making to the coming sacrifice and hoping in what he could not see. I want us to think for a second how difficult this would have been for Abel. Here's a man who came from the most messed up family ever. If you think your family's messed up, let me just tell you. Abel could honestly tell everybody, my mom and dad messed it up for the whole world. It's the most messed up family ever. There is no family, I promise you. Dad and mom brought death on everybody. 
Dad and mom brought all the sickness, all the misery, all the sin, all the corruption, all the evil into the world by disobeying God. He comes from the most messed up family ever. He doesn't have church history to see examples of faith like we do. He doesn't have all those examples set out in front of him to say, I want to be a man of faith. Here are examples of men and women of faith. I will be like them. He comes from the most messed up family ever. He doesn't have examples. And in fact, one of the only examples he has is his brother, who's really an idolater, who's only worshiping for himself begrudgingly. And Abel has everything against him, but Abel has the gospel. Abel had the gospel. Abel had the promise that God would send a redeemer who would suffer, who would conquer sin and Satan and death, And Abel believed God's word, and he acted in faith, and he brought the best of his flock. He brought a lamb that would be slain, whose blood would flow down on the altar, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice. How do we know that God accepted Abel's sacrifice? Well, the scripture doesn't say, but most theologians assume that there was some visible sign, maybe fire coming down, like in the days of Elijah, where God consumed the sacrifice. And in that way, he accepted Abel's, but he didn't accept Cain's. Now, it's interesting that the writer is not just telling us about the faith of Abel and the, and the faith of Abel's sacrifice. He's telling us about the contrast between Cain's sacrifice and Abel's sacrifice. Now, to be fair, Abel brought vegetation. He brought the fruit of the ground. He laid his vegetation on the altar. And in the Old Testament, in the law, there were grain offerings. There were offerings that God required that were not bloody. And so some have argued, well, did Cain fail to bring God an offering if in the law God also asked for grain offerings? And I think the answer is yes. I think that Cain very clearly did not see his need for redemption. He viewed God only as creator, not as redeemer. He viewed God only as creator, not as redeemer. In fact, in the Hebrew, when you go back to Genesis 4, there's an intimation, there's a juxtaposition in the play on words where Abel is said to have brought the best, essentially. He brought the best. He's ready to worship God. He's ready to bring God the best sacrifice. And Cain essentially more or less looked around and said, what do I have left? And it's not that... God accepted Abel because Abel wanted to work his way to God by giving him the best, but that Abel's heart had already been regenerated. He had already been renewed. He was trusting God. He knew God required the best sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice prefigured the lamb of God without blemish and without spot. Abel's lamb prefigured the best sacrifice. When we come to worship God, we are to bring our best, and the best you can bring is Jesus Christ. And that's the only sacrifice God will receive. And if you come to worship and you're not coming into God's presence, trusting in Jesus Christ, bringing that sacrifice before God in faith, trusting in that, God does not accept your sacrifice. We know that because here we're told that Abel offered a more acceptable, a better sacrifice. And actually in the Greek, it's a more sacrifice. It was greater and better because it prefigured the one to come And God accepted it, and he didn't accept Cain's. Now, it's interesting to me that we'll see in a moment Cain's response out of envy toward his brother. But it is interesting to note that Cain's problem ultimately wasn't with Abel, it was with God. 
Cain's problem ultimately wasn't with Abel, it was with God. And Charles Spurgeon says something along the lines of, if Cain could have gotten at God's throat like he did his brothers, he would have. That Cain's heart despised God, even though he was going through the acts of worship. I think that's important for us to grapple with, that it's possible for you and for me to come into worship, to feel an obligation and a duty, to view it as a task, and yet to be coming and seeing it as something burdensome and having a heart that actually doesn't love and desire to give God glory. It's Cain. Cain's coming begrudgingly. I want to read you a quote by uh, Thomas Manton, the old Puritan, He said that Abel's faith was a faith looking forward to reward. Abel looked to the good things to come. His hope had an influence upon his practice. Cain's heart was altogether chained to earthly things. Therefore, he looks upon that as lost, which was spent in sacrifice. See, what Cain ultimately did is what so many people do. They feel like God wants me to worship him. God requires me to worship him. I'll worship God, but even when I give, we didn't really have that to give. When I spend time doing something, I didn't really have time to do that. I could have used that time better. Um, Time, money, energy, prayers, and all of those things, when they become burdensome, it shows exactly what was in Cain's heart. That Cain viewed worshiping God not as a joy, not as a delight, not as an overflowing thanksgiving to God, for what he had done in redemption, but as a burdensome task because his heart was chained to the earth. He cared more about the vegetables than he cared about God. Interestingly, just like his parents. Very interesting. His parents cared more about the fruit of the tree that God told them not to touch than the God who had made them and given them all good things. And so Cain is very much in line with his parents when they were in their unregenerate state and fallenness. And so notice that Abel's Sacrifice is a sacrifice of faith. It is a, it is a sacrifice in which he is looking beyond himself to the reward, to the, the eternal life that God had promised. He is hoping in that. He is longing for that. And so he will spare no expense. I want to say this, that I think it's right to say that when a man or woman's heart is right before God, when they are walking by faith, there's a sense where giving to God time, money, energy, whatever is not burdensome, but that to others it's evident that they actually delight in that, that they don't mind giving the best. They don't mind giving the best portion of their time. They don't mind pouring themselves out in service. Their attitude, I think this is so interesting, that the life of faith is demonstrated by the attitude that men and women have in the supposed exercise of their faith. I think we all have failed. We all know what it is to fail at that. We all know what it is to grumble and complain, to see service to God as, a, as a, a duty. But we also know if we're in Christ, there's times when it's been a delight and a joy when we realize that we're forgiven, when we realize that everything we have is from God and that none of it belongs to us and that he is going to bring us to glory and give us everything and that we're going to be with him and we're going to see his glory. And so giving of any of our time, pouring ourselves out as the Apostle Paul did, he said, I, I gladly spend and be spent for you. That's what the life of faith looks like. Abel would give the best of his flocks. He wouldn't hesitate in thinking about what he ought to give back to God. Not to merit God's favor. Now, secondly, we're told here that Abel's faith was a faith by which he was commended as being righteous. It's very important for us. Notice there that he says, 
that he says there, through which, through that, that faith offered sacrifice, he was commended as righteous. Now, I want to read this quote to you from John Calvin I found so helpful. No works coming from us can please God until we ourselves are received into his favor. No works are deemed just before God, but those of a just man. God bore a testimony to Abel's gift that he had obtained the praise of being just before God. Now, what Calvin's saying is Abel did not become accepted by God by offering that sacrifice. Abel did not gain a status of righteous because of what he did. What the writer of Hebrews says is that Abel doing what he did by faith, offering that best sacrifice, showed that he had been justified by God's free grace. He had already had the imputed righteousness of Christ imputed to him, and what he did evidenced that he was a just man. Luther would often say, as Calvin, um, only a just man can do justly. Only one who has been accepted by God, only one who has been redeemed by God, who has been covered in the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Christ, can actually live righteously. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that if you have faith like Abel, your life will reflect that you've been justified. We can never confuse those two things. If we ever try to think that God accepts us because of what we do, that's legalism. But we also have to recognize that if we are walking by faith, our life will always reflect that we have been justified, that we are just righteous people before God because of Jesus Christ. And so notice that the writer says here that God commended him as righteous. He was testified to as being a righteous man. I want to say this to you this morning. I don't know the spiritual condition of all of you, but the one thing the Bible repeatedly emphasizes is that we learn to come off of our own righteousness and trust wholly in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we actually have to purpose within ourselves, I will not trust in my own works. I will not try to bring to God of my own efforts, my own human power. I will not try to establish my own righteousness. I will trust only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus lived an absolutely sinless life. He died an excruciating, painful death under the wrath of God so that you would trust in him for perfect righteousness. He did that so that you would have a perfect righteousness, so that you'd have a perfect standing before God, so that God would look at you and say, yes, I know how corrupt you are. I know how much you've sinned. I know how much you've disobeyed, but my son has stood in your place. My son has done everything for you. My son went through the waters of baptism for you. My son was tempted in the desert by the devil for you. My son endured all of the scorn and reproach and sorrows of this world. My son obeyed perfectly. My son did all of that. My beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, did all of that so that you would be beloved sons and daughters in him by faith alone. And here's the marvel of it. Abel didn't know all that you just heard. You have, you and I have so much more. He didn't know all that you just heard. But he knew that God promised to redeem, and he trusted in God wholly for redemption. And he didn't trust in his own works. And Cain, in contrast, did trust in his own works. And the irony is, Cain was actually laboring 
to establish his own righteousness because he was driven by selfish motives. And Abel wasn't, and Abel was accepted, and Cain wasn't. And so notice next what the writer tells us in Hebrews 11. He tells us God commending him by accepting his gifts. And then notice, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It's interesting that in this book, the great danger the Hebrews have is turning away from Jesus because of persecution. They don't want to be persecuted. They don't want, they don't want scorn. They don't want to be mocked. They don't want to be ostracized. They don't want to suffer any kind of persecution. The writer will actually tell us in the next chapter that they had not yet resisted sin unto bloodshed. But Abel did. Abel did what God required in the face of his brother's malice and evil and hatred. And Abel became the object of suffering the first Christian martyr, first Christian martyr. He became the object of suffering and martyrdom because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And I think it's fascinating that as the writer of Hebrews is writing this book to a people who desperately need to hear persevere even in the face of persecution, he reaches back to the very beginning of redemptive history and he says, like Abel did, like Abel did. We don't know about all the conflict between Cain and Abel. There are, there are expositions in the Targum and all these uh, Hebrew writings in which um, you see a premeditation, an understanding that the Hebrew is telling you that there's premeditated murder, that Cain says to his brother, let's go out to the field, that he premeditates the murder, that maybe there was reproach, maybe there was scorn. But let me say this, let me say this. The man and woman who have faith in Jesus Christ are always a man and woman who are susceptible to true persecution. I think we ought to expect it. We ought to be prepared for it. And the man or woman who only professes faith in Christ, like Cain, will not suffer persecution. Will not. You know, Jesus actually says, as does Peter in 1 Peter, that suffering is a mark that the Spirit of God is upon you. And that Abel, suffering for Christ's sake, was a mark, as it is for everyone in the Old Testament, as it is for all everyone in the New Testament, as it was for our Lord Jesus. Here's a fascinating parallel. Abel is a type of Jesus Christ in that Abel is a shepherd who offers to God the best sacrifice and then is murdered by his brother who envies him. Jesus is the good shepherd who gives of himself the best sacrifice, is envied by his countrymen and his brethren, and then is murdered and martyred for his uprightness. There is a remarkable typological parallel between them. And what they serve as is they serve as an example of everyone who has saving faith in Jesus. And we've not known that in America. We've not known that. We've had it easy. You know, the worst persecution people have endured in America has been nothing. Nothing. If you ever want to read a book that will move you to understand this more deeply, there's a book called A Cloud of Witnesses. It's a book of the Scottish covenanting martyrs who died in the 17th century at the hand of many Roman Catholic bishops and archbishops. And it's interesting that the greatest persecution that's happened through human history has often come from others who deem themselves religious and who hate those who have saving faith in Jesus, just like Cain and Abel. And so Cain is martyred for his faith. It is a death of faith. He doesn't love his life even to the end. The the Apostle John in Revelation says that the martyrs did not love their life even to the death. Abel so trusted Jesus Christ. And, And I need to say this this morning. The only way 
you and I will ever endure that kind of persecution is if the object of their faith is stronger than the desire for our comforts. The object of your faith needs to be greater than the desire for security and comfort. And so if Jesus is the object of your faith, you will endure under severe persecution. There are stories of martyrs in the, in the Reformation, and um, the story is that he recanted his faith when he was pressed, and, um, and then he felt guilty that he had denied his Savior, and while he was in prison, he came back and he said, I can't deny him, and so he was burned at the stake, and when he went, um, when, he went when, they, when they went to put him into the fire, he stuck out his hand first that he had signed the recantation with. So even if there's a faltering in a person who has saving faith in Jesus, ultimately if the seed of faith is in them, if the Spirit of God is in them, God will sustain them. Christ is greater. Christ will enable you to endure such suffering. And I think the writer of Hebrews is telling the Hebrews about Abel very strategically. Abel was in the exact same situation they were in. And he's saying Abel endured to the end. Abel suffered. His faith was so sincere that he would willingly lay down his life for his Savior. And you know, there's this great quote about um, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the apostle. And Polycarp, at 85 years old, I believe, was um, about to be uh, martyred. And Polycarp said, my Savior has been faithful to me for 80 years. How can I deny him now? Abel could say, my Savior has been faithful to me. No matter how old he was, my, faith, my Savior has been faithful to me. My Lord Jesus laid down his life for me. Can I not lay down my life for him? That's, that is the, the, the death of faith of believers. My Lord has laid down his life for me. Can I not lay down my life for him? Notice, fourthly and finally, that you have Abel's voice of faith. And I think this is fascinating for us to look at very quickly. Notice this, that it says, through his faith, though he died, yet he still speaks. Now, that little phrase wouldn't mean much to us if we didn't have Genesis 4 and Hebrews 12. Genesis 4, God comes to Cain. Cain's just killed Abel. And God says, where's your brother? As if God doesn't know. And Cain denies killing his brother. And then God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, vengeance upon Cain. Essentially, what he's saying is your brother's blood calls down for just retribution against what you've done. And then in Hebrews 12, the next chapter, we're told that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus from the ground into which it was shed, speaks better things than that of Abel. I think it's fascinating. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out for pardon. Abel's blood cries out against retribution, against Cain for what he had done, the just punishment for the evil that he had done. Jesus' blood, because it is the blood of the Son of God, cries out for mercy and grace on all those who trust him. It speaks better things than that of Abel. And yet here in verse 4 of chapter 11, notice that it says, he being dead still speaks. The question is, how does he still speak? Abel is speaking to you this morning. The blood of Abel, the person of Abel, is speaking to you this morning by his testimony of faith. 
And everything that happened to Abel, everything that happened to him during his life of faith is a testimony to you of multiple things that he is saying to you this morning. I found this, and I'll close this morning with this. I found this um, in Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator. And this is what he says. He sees a series of things that Abel's voice says to us. Though he's dead, what he still speaks to you this morning. The first thing that Abel says to you is that fallen man can go and worship God with the hope of acceptance. That's what Abel says to you. His voice says to you this morning, you're fallen, you're sinful, you're rebellious, you're corrupt. You have not loved God. You have not loved uprightness. And yet you can go and worship him through the sacrifice of Jesus and be accepted. That's marvelous. Abel is a witness. His voice proclaims acceptance of sinners by God. Secondly, Matthew Henry says, if our persons and our offerings are accepted, it must be through faith in the Messiah. Abel's voice says to you this morning, it is by faith and faith alone. It is by faith in Christ. It is by faith in the Redeemer. It is not by what we do. It is by trusting him and living by faith in him. And so Abel's voice says that to you this morning. Abel's voice says that acceptance with God is a peculiar and distinguishing favor, that it's a large blessing, that it's bountiful in God's grace to you, that it's all God's free favor and grace to you, and that it's undeserved, that Abel didn't deserve that. Abel didn't deserve redemption any more than Cain deserved it. But Abel got it because it was a mark of God's great favor and kindness and grace. And then Matthew Henry says, Abel's voice tells us that those who obtain this favor from God must expect the envy and malice of the world. That if you've received the mercy and the grace of God, if you have faith in Christ, expect persecution, suffering, hatred, enmity, and reproach of the world. Expect it. Don't be surprised when it comes. Abel tells us that this morning. Abel says, it came, expect it. Fifthly, Matthew Henry says, God will not suffer the injuries done to his people to remain unpunished. Just like Abel's blood cried out to God for vengeance, the saints in the book of Revelation who were suffering, they said to God, how long, O Lord, faithful and true, until you avenge our blood on the earth, that God takes note of the sufferings of his people. God is not unjust to forget his people. God is not unjust to forget their sufferings. God is a holy God, and God will take vengeance on all those that hate him and hate his people. Abel's voice cries out to us that God would not allow Abel's faith to die with him, but that he would raise up others. That Abel would be, in a sense, the first of many, many, many that God would redeem throughout human history. And that Abel is essentially saying, and I'm going to close with this, because the writer says that this is a cloud of faith, cloud of witnesses. And Abel is saying to you this morning, run. Abel is saying to you this morning, believe. Trust Jesus Christ. Press on through the difficulties. Take up the cross. Deny yourself. Follow him. It's worth it. Hold fast to the best and only sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Hold on to your profession of faith in him. It's worth it. God has, has and will redeem. Abel is the first of that cloud of witness. As we close, I want you to think about a few things. One is God's great faithfulness that no sooner had our first parents fallen that he gave us this amazing example of faith in one of their sons. 
in the first generation after the fall. And that for us in the 21st century ought to be an enormous encouragement to us that that we are not alone, that we are merely a continuation of what God did graciously in redemption, that he has been redeeming his people throughout all these generations. Secondly, I want to ask you to encourage yourself to be looking to Jesus Christ, to be asking, am I trusting in anything other than Jesus? Am I trusting in my knowledge? Am I trusting in my heritage? Am I trusting in what I've done in the past? Am I trusting in my church attendance? Am I trusting in my gifts, my abilities? Am I trusting in whatever? Or am I trusting wholly in Jesus Christ for righteousness? I think that's what, that's the big thing we need to take away. Are you trusting only in Jesus Christ? Because at the end of the day, the thing that every saint in this chapter has in common is that, that they came off of their own righteousness They trusted in the righteousness of another. And everything we're going to see in the weeks ahead is an outworking of that faith in Jesus Christ. And, beloved, if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, you will not have the testimony that God has accepted you. You will not have that on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, only those who have the faith of Abel, who have the sacrifice of Abel, who have the righteousness of Abel, who are willing to die like Abel, and whose voices proclaim the same things as Abel, will be able to stand on Judgment Day before the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the testimony of faith that you gave to Abel. We thank you, Father, that his voice still speaks and that your Holy Spirit has recorded these things for us. We thank you for the same sacrifice that he trusted in, and that we can come to you, Father, freely and joyfully, trusting only in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you give us the same faith as Abel. We pray that you would increase our faith, that you would help our unbelief, for we do, we do believe, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would make us men and women and boys and girls who are willing to lay down our lives because of our faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us... Um, endurance and perseverance. We pray that you would give us joy and hope to look beyond the things that are to the things to come. Father, we pray that you would indwell us this morning and build us up as we come to the table. We pray these things in your name. Amen.